0: with me to Hebrews chapter 10, the letter to the Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 26 through 31 and considering what it means to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you hungry and thirsty. We come to you weak. Asking that you would strengthen us. We pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit, you would fill this place and strengthen us in the inner man. That we might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And that in knowing the love of Christ, we might be filled with all the fullness of God. O Lord, open our eyes to see the realities of our salvation in this place. At this time, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you're a student of history or philosophy or comparative religions, you know that there's generally two ways people look at history. All throughout humanity, there are two views of what history is. Some will say that history is a cycle, that it is cyclical. That one generation of man comes and the cycle turns over and people are reincarnated. People are brought back in different forms. That's the cyclical view of history. Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, the ancient pagan religion of the Celts in Europe all had a cyclical view of history. The other view of history, which is predominant in most Uh, Thinking and religions today is that history is linear. History has a definite beginning point and it has a definite ending point. Now we know from the scriptures that history is linear, it had a definite beginning and it will have a definite ending. We know that the end point of history is that. Day. That there is one day that God has appointed for history to come to a conclusion. The final day is called many things in Scripture. It's called the day of Christ. It's called the last day. It's called the day of the Lord. It's called Judgment Day. All of these references to these various days are all speaking about the one day. That will end history. There are many things that will happen on that day. Christ will return, as Paul says in Thessalonians, with the shout of the archangel and bring back those who are his from the dead. But also with that same voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, Christ will bring those who are not his up from the dead. John chapter 5. And on that day, those that belong to Christ will be fully vindicated and those that do not belong to Christ will be judged. Hence, this day is often called Judgment Day. As Paul told the Athenians, the Lord has appointed one day in which he will judge all men. This passage presents to us the end of history. And it brings the end of history, that final day, directly to our souls. The Scriptures do not talk about the last day as some distant, far-off thing that we can neglect. The Scriptures, in this passage especially, speak about the final day of history, Judgment Day, as a present reality that we must all wrestle with. This passage brings the end of history to our very souls and warns us about what will happen on that great and dreadful day of the Lord. But why, you might ask? Why a warning like this? This is not the first warning we found in the book of Hebrews. Chapters 5 and 6, there's another warning of the same nature, a very strong warning that those who do not grow in Christ, who do not bear the fruits of regeneration, will be damned. So why these kind of warnings? Turn with me to Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 26 gives us the way to understand the warnings in Scripture. These are often wildly misunderstood by people today. Many people either say that the warning doesn't apply to me, because I've confessed Christ and so the warnings don't matter for me. Others will say that the warnings mean everyone's condemned now. But I want you to see in Jeremiah 26, the Lord's purposes in these warnings. Give attention. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law which I have set before you to heed the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Notice what the Lord says about his own purposes in sending these warnings. He sends these warnings without diminishing a word so that his people will hear and fear and repent. You see this in the ministry of Jonah. You remember what Jonah's message was to Nineveh? In 40 days, God's going to level this city. That's all he preached. In 40 days, judgment is coming. And what happened? The king and all the Ninevites repented, and the city was spared. You see, the warnings are meant to bring us to repentance. And so as we look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, I counsel you, do not harden your hearts at this warning. I counsel you in the name of God, do not harden your hearts, for this warning is for you and your children after you. So what do we learn in this passage? On judgment day, sinners will be judged according to the judgment of the gospel by God, the righteous judge. On judgment day, sinners will be judged according to the judgment of the gospel by God, the righteous judge. We have three things in this passage. Verses 26 through 27, we have the judged, those that will be judged. Verses 28 and 29, we have the judgment, meaning the judgment by which they will be judged. And then in verses 30 and 31, we have the judge himself. 26 and 27 is the judged. 28 and 29 is the judgment. 30 and 31 is the judge. So as we begin looking at this passage, we begin with verse 26. Notice how the author begins this passage. If we, he includes himself in this warning. He includes himself in this admonition. Remember also who the author is writing to. He's writing to a church of professing Christians. This warning is given to the church. Remember, Jeremiah's preaching was to Judah and all those who come to the house of the Lord to worship. It is to professing believers that these warnings are sent. Brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you what a privilege of the gospel ministry it is that God sends his warnings to you first. Unbelievers don't receive these warnings. Those that do not profess the Christian religion do not receive these warnings. But God's people do. There's a a fatal mistake that many of us make under preaching. We think this way. Well, I'm glad the pastor preached that because so-and-so over there needed to hear it. That's a fatal mistake. You will not be held accountable for so-and-so's sins. You will be held accountable for your own sins. And so when you hear the preaching of the word, don't apply it to your neighbor. Apply it to yourself. The author describes the spiritual dynamic of preaching in Hebrews chapter 4. Remember what he says. Hebrews chapter 4. We've already looked at this, but I'll just repeat it for you. Verses 12 through 13. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Brothers and sisters, every single soul in this room will give an account to God on that day. Therefore, he sends this warning now, do not harden your hearts, for there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. He says in Hebrews 10, verse 26, if we sin, now we need to pay a little bit of attention to what sin is. In general, sin is a transgression or want of conformity unto the law of God. Westminster Shorter, number 14. James 4.17 says this, therefore to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. First John 3:4 Whoever commits sin transgresses the law for sin is the transgression of the law One of the things that judgment day reminds us of and the warnings of judgment day is that the standard of our conduct is God's law What we ought to be is laid out in his 10 commandments The standard is not the laws of men the standard is not the culture of men. The standard is not the, the, the shifting feelings and opinions of men. The standard is God's law. But a little more pointedly, we need to see what this sin, in verse 26, if we sin willfully, what does he mean in context? Because there's a specific context here. John Owen, commenting on this, has this to say. The sin is rejecting the exhortation. The exhortation we saw last week, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness by a new and living way and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another. In other words, the sin in this passage is relinquishing and renouncing the profession of the faith with all of the acts and duties required of the gospel. As I mentioned, it's let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider one another. The exhortation is simply this, faith, hope, and love. Drawing near to God with a true heart, washed by the waters of baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit is faith. Holding fast our confession is hope. And considering one another to love and good works is love. And so the author has exhorted us to maintain faith, hope, and love. That's the sin in context. Notice he also says in verse 26 willfully. If we sin willfully, this means intentionally, voluntarily, by a free choice, without compulsion. Without necessity. If we sin by our own free choice. This is not an accidental sin or a sin of ignorance. Some sins are accidental. Sometimes we fall into sin and don't realize that we're sinning. That's not what he's talking about. Sometimes there's sins of ignorance. We do things that we didn't know were sinful. That's not what he's talking about. You notice in the next phrase he says, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth. It is a sin or a habit of sin that is consciously chosen in the face of better knowledge. Now we need to recognize that the exhortation, just as he said, maintain faith, hope, and love, the apostasy that he's speaking about happens by degrees. This is not something that happens overnight. You you see an atheist debating a Christian, and then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm going to walk away from Christ. That's not how it works. This sin happens by degrees. Love is the first one to go. Loving your brethren is the first one we give up. Christ said in Matthew 24, 12, because of the wickedness of those days, the love of many will grow cold. Hope is the next thing that gets cut off. Proverbs ten twenty eight says that the hope of the righteous man is joy, but the expectation of the wicked will be cut off. And then finally, once love and hope are gone, faith itself is snuffed out in the heart. Psalm 19, 13, David prays and he says, search me and cleanse me of my secret faults. Teach me your ways and Uh, Turn to to Psalm 19. Psalm 19.13. David prays in this vein. Verse 12. David has just recounted the glories of the law of God. And then he says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Willful sins. Sins that I would choose in the face of better knowledge. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of the great transgression. The author to Hebrews is describing that great transgression. This is why, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons... The chief command that Christ gave to his church was to love one another. The primary message he left with his church was believe in me and love one another as I have loved you. Because when love starts to wane, hope will dry up. When love and hope are dead, faith will follow shortly thereafter. He continues in verse 26 and says, If we sin after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Those that are judged are those who forsake the gospel and all the duties it requires. Now, many of us mistake what judgment is going to be like. We'll come to that in a second. But but many of us hear messages like this and think, well, I believe in Jesus. Very good. I hope that you do believe in Jesus. But the point that the author is making, the point that the New Testament is making, the point that Christ makes in John 15, if you believe in Christ, bear the fruits of Christ. And if you don't have the fruits of Christ, how can you say you believe in Christ? For every branch that does not bear fruit, my father cuts off and they are cast into the fire. That's exactly what the author is saying here. Notice also in verse 28, I'm sorry, 27, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, and so those who walk away from the gospel, they still bear their guilt. They still bear their shame. They still bear judgment in themselves, but they have nowhere to run. And the only thing left for them is, as he says in verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment hope turns to dread the day of christ for his people is the day of the greatest rejoicing imaginable the day of christ for those who do not believe is the day of greatest dread and terror imaginable notice what else he says in verse 27 there's an expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries Those who reject the gospel and the duties it requires are the adversaries of God. That's what this means. Well, we've seen those who are going to be judged. Now we turn to the judgment itself. Notice in verse 28, he begins with a contrast. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we've been noting how the grace of the new covenant is greater than the grace of the old covenant. The promises of the new covenant are greater than the promises of the old covenant. The sacrifice of the new covenant is greater than the sacrifice of the old covenant. And the priesthood and the temple and the worship and the blessings and the privileges, all of it is greater, including the condemnation. Not only is the grace of the new covenant greater, the judgment of the new covenant is greater than the old. And this is for one reason. Christ has died and risen. Heaven is open to you right now. The Spirit has been poured out. All of God's goodness is available to you right now. The Old Testament did not enjoy that. As we saw in verse 19, the realities of our salvation, one of them, the primary reality, is that we have boldness to enter the holiest. The heaven of heavens are open to you through the blood of Christ. Today, is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Westminster Confession, chapter 15, says this about repentance. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. What does that mean? It means that repentance is a grace of the gospel. Being humbled for our sins and being transformed and turning away, purposing to obey God is a gift of the gospel. The doctrine we're off is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. By it, meaning repentance unto life, a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, judgment day, But also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. And upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. Brothers and sisters, the preaching of judgment day is not condemnation now. It is condemnation in the future if you don't repent. The sinner so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin, my repentance does not earn me forgiveness. My repentance does nothing for me as far as atoning for my sins." Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. You see why God warns us. If we do not repent, we cannot be saved. Under Moses, as it says in verse 28, the penalty for high-handed sins was severe and swift. Deuteronomy 17 gives us an illustration of this. Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 5. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 5. If there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, Who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have not commanded. And it is told you and you hear of it and you shall inquire diligently. If it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or that woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stone. This is what the author is referring to. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, verse 6 speaks about that right after what we just read. Under Moses' law, they died without mercy. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he shall be thought worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and insulted the spirit of grace. The word here in verse 29, when he says, of how much worse punishment, the word punishment means vindictive punishment that arises from outraged justice. You know, Psalm 18, David describes the Lord and, and how the Lord comes in vengeance against his enemies. The Lord is described in many different ways in Scripture. He's described as a shepherd for his people. He's described as a king over his kingdom. He's described as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Christ, he's described as a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. But when David describes the Lord who comes in vengeance, he's described as a dragon. He says that the breath of his nostrils burns them up. That's a dragon. And he's describing him as one who takes fiery wrath upon his enemies. That's what the author's describing here. You know, they say that hell has no fury like a woman scorned. What this passage is telling us is that hell is the fury of a god scorned he describes that in two ways despising the son of god and his precious blood counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulting with arrogance the spirit of god that's what the language means here and insulted the spirit of grace the greek word for insulted actually comes from the word for hubris The Greek word for hubris means arrogance. Christ said, the Father loves you because you love me. The Father loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from God. To the same degree that the Father accepts you as you love Christ, he hates those who reject Christ. In courts of law, as many of you know, there is an indictment presented to the judge and jury upon which the accused is to be judged. So-and-so is guilty of theft or murder or treason or whatever the case may be. Based on the evidence, the accused is either found guilty or innocent. Here, what the author is saying is that those who are guilty of this sin The indictment is nothing less than being a party to the crucifixion of Christ. Look at the language. Trampled underfoot the Son of God. The same kind of language comes in Hebrews chapter 6. He's even more explicit. Hebrews 6.4. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, if they commit the great transgression to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. And so what the author is saying here is that to be guilty of this sin is to be guilty of the crucifixion of Christ. Was it not the Jews Who said of Christ, he casts out demons by the spirit of demons, blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Was it not the Jews who ended up crucifying Christ? Likewise, those who refuse the gospel and its duties of faith, hope, and love are as guilty, yea, more guilty than the Jews who crucified he who was in the bosom of the Father. John chapter 1. You know what that language means to say that the son is in the bosom of the father? Whenever your infant child comes and you want to comfort them or you want to show your expression of love to them, what do we do? We pick the child up and bring them right to our bosom. John is saying that about Christ's relationship to the father. He's in the bosom of the father. He who is in the bosom of the Father, the beloved, the Son of the Father's love, the one in whom the Father is well pleased. That's what we are guilty of if we forsake the gospel. Zechariah thirteen seven predicts the crucifixion of Christ. Don't turn there, but in, in that verse, the, the, the author is speaking, the Lord predicts and says, I will strike him who is my fellow. The word used in Hebrew there is a word that means close friend, bosom buddy. It's the father speaking about Christ. So what are we to do with this? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Remember, the warnings now are for repentance. Acts 2, verse 23, Peter is preaching Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Skipping down. to verse uh, 32. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not descend ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly That God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Notice who Peter is preaching to. He's preaching to the men that nailed the hands of the Son of God to the wood. He's preaching to the men that denied the Lord of glory in front of Pilate. He's preaching to the worst sinners in history. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be cleansed. If they can be cleansed, you can be cleansed. If these murderers of Christ can be cleansed, you can be cleansed. If you repent, remember the warnings and the indictment are not for your condemnation. They are for your salvation through repentance in the Son of God. Well, we've seen those that will be judged And we've seen the indictment against those that will be judged. Nothing less than murdering the Son of God. Now we have to consider the judge himself. Some of you may know the movie True Grit. In in the movie True Grit, there is a scene in a courtroom with Judge Parker. Judge Parker was a real historical judge in the Wild West. And uh, Judge Parker became known as Hanging Judge Parker, because of his record of sentencing men to death. To have Judge Parker try your case meant you were probably going to die if you were found guilty. He's hanging Judge Parker. And so the judge who tries the case has a major effect on what happens. Verses 30 and 31, they now move us to consider the judge. Likewise, God the judge, notice what he says in verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God the judge is known to all. All men understand this. For his absolute justice when he holds court. All men know this instinctively. That's why their consciences are ill at ease. That's why men, without having been taught... Why children, without ever having been taught, when they lie, they feel shame. When they do wrong, they try to hide it. This is why all men understand the shame of sin, because all men know, ultimately, God will judge without mercy, without partiality, without removing one iota of the indictment against us. On judgment day, all the deeds of men will be judged and repaid in full. Notice what he says in verse 30. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. All men, wicked and righteous, will be judged by God for what they have done in the body. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Peter speaks about this. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Notice what Peter means. He's speaking about the spiritually dead those who live in the will of the Gentiles, those who live in the flesh, those that are spiritually dead have the gospel preached to them so that on judgment day that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit. What's the judgment that he's talking about here? He's saying that those that are spiritually dead and live in their sins will have no excuse on judgment day Because there are men who were saved, regenerate, and walked in the Spirit. There are men who were born sinners that God transformed by His own Spirit. And so there is no excuse. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Paul the Apostle writes on this same theme. The theme of judgment according to works. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. I'm glad the preacher said that because so-and-so needed to hear it. That's what he's talking about. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, who judge those practicing such things... And doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And then at the end of the passage in verse 16, he says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There's a major misconception about the judge. In Psalm 50. The Lord corrects this misconception. Psalm 50 verse 16. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Notice they're professing Christians. They take God's covenant in his mouth. Jesus is Lord. That's who uh, God is speaking to seeing that you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. We err to our own peril in thinking that because nothing has happened to us yet for our sins that God does not notice. Look at what he says. I have kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Notice at the end of Psalm 50, the warning is delivered undiminished with the promise at the end. To him who orders his conduct aright, to him who repents, I will show the salvation of God. To him who trembles at the word of God, God will be gracious to him. (coughs) and so we can say in Hebrews 10 returning there verses 30 and 31 it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God fearful because he is absolutely holy unlike us Fearful, because all the sins that we hide and make excuses for will be exposed. Fearful, because through our sins we trample heaven's favored Son and insult the Spirit of grace. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. To be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. The gospel message is not judgment doesn't matter. The gospel message is that judgment is coming. Repent now and be reconciled. Because God is exercising great patience. God is exercising infinite long-suffering. God is giving you his goodness to bring you to repentance for your sins. And so be reconciled to God. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. You may escape the judgment of men of the church and the state. None can escape the judgment that is coming. For the judge who comes will not spare in that day. Judgment day is not a day of mercy. Today is a day of mercy. Judgment day is not a day of grace. Today is the day of grace. And so, as John the Baptist preached in his day, so I preach to you, save yourselves from the wrath to come. Repent and be cleansed in the blood of Christ. Reject this warning at your own peril. And may Christ seal it to your hearts. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for the warnings that you deliver to us. We pray, O Lord, that you would cause us to tremble. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to renew our faith and repentance and to cultivate hope holding fast our confession that we would grow in love for the brethren even as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. O Lord, pour your Spirit upon us that we might be the sons and daughters of God indeed. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.